Well, I have a question for you. <clears throat> God helps those who help themselves. True or false? <laughs> That's false. That's not in the Bible. It's not anywhere in the Bible. Thank God that it's not in the Bible. Because if that was the case, then the Bible would have ended at Genesis chapter 3 with Adam and Eve trying to cover up their sin with these thin little meager fig leaves and hiding from God and hiding from one another. It would have been over because they didn't help themselves. They couldn't help themselves. They didn't even know how deep and profound and desperate their need was. Now, that's not in the Bible, but did you know that 60% of Americans believe that's in the Bible? It's in our DNA, guys. We are attracted to all things self-help related. We are. It's not in the Bible, but that's in our hearts. We believe that. When you're told a lie repeatedly and you tell it to yourself to reinforce it, it takes root and it wraps its tentacles really deeply around us. That's what self-help is. It's somebody or even yourself directing you for the source of strength back to your own heart. That is not in the Bible at all, but we believe it. No, God did not come to help strong people. He came to help weak people. He didn't come to help good people become better. He came to make dead people alive. That's what the Bible says. I did not come to call the righteous, but the unrighteous. <clears throat> people that are healthy have no need of a physician, but people who are sick, desperately sick, <clears throat> the Bible says our hearts are, <clears throat> excuse me, we are the ones that have the need for Jesus. I've been thinking a lot about <clears throat> self-help this week and how we believe that and how there's all these new books. And you guys know this. All these new self-help resources come out every single year. Did you know this? Thousands. Literally, at least 5,000 new self-help resources come out every single year. Why? Because the 5,000 that came out last year didn't work. But guess what? We'll go back. We'll go back and we'll buy them again and we'll try it again and we'll tell ourselves lies. And you know what? It will leave us crushed with disappointment. That's what self-help does. It leaves you crushed with disappointment in yourself, maybe in somebody else. And if we're honest, maybe with God, you feel like he misled you. That's what self-help does. And I'm starting to get concerned because I've noticed this trend the last several years. Thank you, brother. I have noticed that, by the way, self-help is a billion-dollar market. Did you know that? You want some help? Oh, they'll sell it to you for $9.99. And they know you'll come back next year and you'll pay even more. But here's what concerns me, is that I'm starting to see more self-help stuff in the Christian bookstore. Are you? It's, it's, it's almost as if you're reading a Christian resource and it's like you're at the YMCA which is a great place. I love the Y. Join, join the Y. But you hear things like, you're killing it. You're crushing it. You got this, bro. Come on. Things you would hear at a gym from your spotting partner that's trying to encourage you or things you would tell yourself when you're pounding the pavement in a 5K run or running a, doing a triathlon or swimming or whatever. But I'm starting to hear and read those things in, in Christian resources. They're pointing you like, you've got this. You're crushing it. And if we're honest, no, we don't got this. We're not crushing it. We're being crushed by it. It's crushing us. And then we're left disillusioned and sad and depressed. So this sermon today is about when you can't help yourself. And maybe even a better title, you know, hindsight's 2020. A better title would have been 
why you can't help yourself. This sermon is a debunk for all the self-help movements, okay? I'm going to tell you three reasons from this passage why self-help never works, ever. Are you ready? They're going to go fast. Three reasons. Reason number one, control. You don't have control of anything, yourself included, which leads us to point two. You don't have self-knowledge. <laughs> you don't know yourself. And the Bible says you can't even know yourself. That's how deep and, and twisted our hearts are. Jeremiah 17, 9 says they're deceitful above all things. What's the most deceitful thing in the world you can think of? <laughs> don't answer that. <laughs> Did somebody say a car dealer? Who said that? <laughs> no, your heart's worse than that. Charles Spurgeon once said this, and I know I'm getting ahead of myself. That's okay. The whole sermon is going to be like this, and I get really excited. Charles Spurgeon said, take the, the most hostile critic, and he had a lot, the Prince of Preachers back in London, and he said the, the, the darkest, blackest thing that they could possibly say about him wouldn't even come close to the true shade of blackness in his own heart. Now, we don't have control over anything, including ourselves. We don't have self-knowledge. And the third thing we don't have is we don't have the power to change. We don't. We don't have it. So, spoiler alert. I just gave you the sermon, but now I want to go back and unpack that, okay? So, let's take a look at this passage. This is Jesus blowing the self-help movement out of the water. What he sh this, is, this is a really unique time for the disciples. This is the greatest test they're ever going to face, ever. This is like the dark night of the soul for all of them. Things are about to get really like crazy weird for them in just a few hours. And Jesus is going to tell them that it is, but they won't believe him. This is the greatest test they face. And would you believe the things that Jesus tells them in order to prepare them for it? I mean, it's so counterintuitive and outrageous. You wouldn't believe it unless you found it in the Bible. Because it's, it's, it's unlike any Jesus you've ever heard about from the self-help movement. You know what Jesus tells these disciples that are going to turn the world upside down? You know what he tells his disciple, Peter, the rock? You know what he tells them? Check this out. He says, one of you will betray me. One of you will deny me three times. All of you will forsake me. How's that for self-help? That's what the Bible says. That's in your Bible. That's in this passage right here. And why did Jesus tell them that? And why is he telling us that? Because the quicker you realize that, the better off you're going to be, spiritually speaking. You know, self-help may work at the gym. It may help when you're running that 5K, but it doesn't work when you're trying to be faithful to God. It doesn't work. So point number one, why does self-help number work? Point number one, because you do not have control over the details. This, this is a really neat uh, passage, the way it's situated here. Because you would, you would read this and you would think, why in the heck is this first part here in verse, in verse 12? And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into a city. And a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. It sounds like your GPS, man, if you live in Arkansas. You're going you're to pass a seesaw, and there will be a pit bull there, and then you turn left there. <laughs> he says, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. Now, check out verse 16. Look at this. 
And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it. What's that say? Just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Don't miss this. This is like a theological gold mine buried here. Jesus has given them very specific details for everything that's going to happen that night. From the details of setting up the Passover meal to the details of how treacherous and deceitful their hearts are. And that, if, you're, if you're into underlining your Bible or highlighting your device, you can underline. And they went into the city and they found it just as he had told them. Because everything that Jesus is warning them about, they're going to find it just as he told them it would be. The room, their hearts, his death, his resurrection. They're not in control of these details. Jesus is. Self-help doesn't work because we can't control the details. And you know what? This night is about to get so weird, like off the tracks crazy. Jesus is reminding them that. Now, my friends, listen. He's saying to them, you're going to see things and feel things and hear things and experience things tonight that you're going to think, I'm out of control. The world's out of control, but it's not. Everything is happening according to plan. But not your plan, my plan. Have you found that to be true in your own life? I've got a biblical theology book, one of my favorites, written by a man named Graham Goldsworthy. And the name of the book is According to Plan. Because if you read the Bible, you're like, what the heck? Is this, this was supposed to happen? And Jesus says, this is exactly what the plan was from the beginning of the world. Everything in intricate, menu scales, I say it, details. It's all working out according to my plan. Every detail. I don't want to get into all the, the stuff with the water pot. You know, that would have been unique for them to see a man carrying a water park, a uh, water park, carrying Disney World on their shoulder. <laughs> because women carried the water pots. That would have been super weird for them. To, it would have been like a guy carrying a purse, you know? So he's like, when you see that, go there, upper room furnished, ta-da, everything in detail. You're going to find it exactly like I told you it would. And Jesus is telling them, by the end of this night, Judas is going to be hanging from the end of a rope. Peter is going to be doubting himself. All of you are going to be in hiding, and I'm going to be beaten to a pulp, arrested, and you're going to think this whole plan has gone off the rails, and I'm telling you it's not. This is exactly according to plan. It always has been according to plan. And when you read the Bible, you really see that. You see that in the Old Testament. You see it in the New Testament. Check this out. This is a really interesting passage. Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching his first sermon, okay, when 3,000 people were converted. And I think he remembered what Jesus said uh, that night. Check this out. Men of Israel... Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to what? The definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So wait a minute, tell me, Judas is going to betray Jesus. Yep, that's right. An act of deceit and treachery. Yes. He's absolutely morally culpable and responsible for it. Yes. But that was God's plan all along. Yes, you got it. It's exactly what the Bible says. That blows your mind a little bit, doesn't it? But tell the truth. Doesn't it encourage you to? That it's all going according to plan. All of it is. Judas seeking out an opportunity to betray him. Peter denying him, all the disciples forsaking him, 
It's all according to plan. There's another place that's even more specific in Acts chapter 4. Whenever they were persecuted and they ran back to the community of Christians and they said this, they're praying. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Mind blown. It's all according to God's plan. Self-help never works because you can't control details. We don't even know what the details are. We certainly can't control them. But God can, God has, God does, and God will continue to control the details. He is moving history, orchestrating it. Now that blows my mind. All the endless possibilities and contingencies. Even me coming here this morning from my house, all the endless contingencies and possibilities, like a tire going flat or... I mean, it just blows your mind to think about it. God is in absolute sovereign control of all those things. And I know we hear the word sovereignty and we think, yeah, that's a nice little 25-cent word that's in a systematic theology book. But no, friends, that is a beautiful, precious, empowering word that when your life starts to fall to pieces, you're going to cling to it like a life vest because you're going to feel like I'm sinking. This wasn't in the plan. Well, no, it wasn't in your plan. It wasn't in your plan. But God's got it covered. See, self-help doesn't work because you can't control the details. So check this out. 2007, my wife and I were living in our first little house. We'd remodeled the whole thing. We were so excited. Unbeknownst to us, the economy's about to tank, right? Uh, but I felt called and compelled to go to seminary. So we've been praying about it, and we said, let's do it. Let's move. Let's get crazy. We got one kid. We're going to move 900 miles, go into debt to try and pay for a seminary. So we've got to sell our house. So I called some people, and check this out. I used to be a carpenter once upon a time. So I had a job waiting for me in Los Angeles, California, a union job. Back in 2007, $50 an hour. That's good money back then, right? I mean, it still is good money. I had that job waiting on me by an elder from Grace Community Church named Dave Muxlow. He said, I'll hire you in a minute. I'd love to help a seminarian support you. I'm like, good deal. We sold our house. I'm like, God, is it this? This is amazing. We sold our house. I didn't even have to put it on the market. I was bragging about it. We came from a big church. We put it in this opportunity sheet on Wednesday night. A couple came by. We were eating dinner. And they said, hey, is this your house for sale? I'm like, it is. And they said, we'll take it. And I'm like, I spent my broccoli. I'm like, what? They're like, we'll take it. We want it. We want to buy a rent house. I'm like, you want to see it? They're like, no, we'll take it. We trust you. We'll, we'll, we'll pay what you're asking for it. I'm like, Lord, hallelujah. This is, this is all according to my plan. It's going. House sold. Got a job waiting on me. So we moved to California 900 miles. And then Sarah gets pregnant. And I'm like, man, this is all great. I'm going, I'm going to learn under John MacArthur. It's going to be awesome. So Dave Muxlow calls me. First week we're there. And he said, hey, we need to, we need to have lunch, buddy. So I'm like, all right, I can't wait to get orientation, new job. So he takes me out to eat. He sits me down and he says, I'm laying people off. I'm like, oh man, I'm sorry. I feel bad about taking somebody's job. You know, he goes, no, 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 no. He said, I actually, the, the economy's like tanking and construction is the first thing to get hit. So I'm sorry. I, I feel terrible about this, but I'm just as surprised as you are. We'll just have to trust God together. I don't have a job for you. I just sold my house, man. I just moved 900 miles with my pregnant wife. And like this is, I was counting on this. He said, I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do. 
so my, we're living in this apartment. We're not going to be able to pay the rent. My neighbor said, hey, look, a friend of mine works a security job at the college down the street, an overnight job, but it's something. So I put my resume in, and I, I get hired. I, I wear a Barney Fife costume, and my hours are 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. And I think I make like $2 an hour. <laughs> And I go straight to class. That sounds like a great plan, doesn't it? Seriously, you work 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. and then you go straight to class and you're a full-time student. That's awesome. Thank you, God. This is, this is exactly what I had in mind. And seriously, I'm better. I'm disappointed. I'm getting angry and I'm like, Lord, this is not what I signed up for. So I'm walking my, my security route. It's three in the morning and I'm in the middle of the soccer field at the master's college and I'm venting to God. I'm like, I hate this. I don't want to be here. My wife doesn't want to be in the house all night without her husband there. What the heck, God? What the heck? Is this how you train people? <laughs> Is this how you train your, your workers? And I kid you not, my phone rings. And it's a man I've never met in my life. And he said, this is Byron. And he said, I understand a few things. Number one, you're from Arkansas. Yes, sir. Number two, you're a carpenter. I said, yes, I am. And he said, number three, you're going to seminary and you need some financial help. And I said, yes, yes, and yes. And he said, well, I'll tell you what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this short because i got a lot to cover. He said, I'll tell you what, I go to Grace Community Church. I'm from Arkansas. I work for Hollywood, uh, hauling you know, sets back and forth. And I got a job for you to do. I need some bookshelves built. And I'm like, well, hang on a minute. I said, I'm a full-time student. I work overnight. I got a family. I appreciate the offer, man, but I, I'm not going to be, I don't even have my tools with me. I didn't bring anything. Like I said, my whole plan is falling to pieces. He said, no, it's, it's okay. Why don't you meet me in the bookstore after the second service? He said, I'm about seven foot tall and I'll have on a John Deere hat and some coveralls. I'm like, are you, is somebody punking me? Who is this? <laughs> and he said, That's, my name's Byron. I'll be there. So second service, I go into the bookstore. There's a seven foot tall guy wearing overalls, a John Deere hat. And he walks up to me, and he hands me a folded check, and he says, put this in your pocket, cash it, and deposit it. And uh, he said, we'll talk about the work that I have for you later. And I'm like, no, 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 that's not how I do things. I do your job, you're happy with it, then you pay me. He said, well, that's not how I do things. We're going to work things a little bit different. He said, so you go cash that and meet me right here next week, and we'll, we'll talk about step two. I'm going to make this a really short story. That guy paid for my entire seminary, like $30,000. Every week that happened. Every week. It was another $500 check. $500 check. I'm like, when, when am I going to build your bookshelves? He said, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. We, ne we never got to that. But what I did get to was, you know, that got paid for my seminary pretty much. And the next week, somebody put in a good word for me at Grace to You, and I got hired there. And, and I know this, is, this sounds terrible to you because you're like, yeah, you had a happy, happy ending. I don't, but I didn't know that at the time. I didn't know that. I was crushed with disappointment. I was second-guessing my decision. I was ready to pack up and go back home and say, I'm not going to seminary. I waited too late. I can't afford it. Then I won't be hireable. I'll be stuck at this church all my life, not doing what I really want to do, being in pastoral ministry. But I wasn't in charge of the details. He was. And you're not either. He is. And it gets really bumpy and rough, doesn't it? We do not control the details. The disciples found everything exactly as Jesus said it would be. And we will too. We will too in his timing. And you know what that also means? It means not a hair of your head is uncounted by God. Now that's no trick for him with me. <laughs> 
But listen, not a sparrow falls to the ground. God knows. He has intimate, loving, personal acquaintance with your situation, whatever it is. He knows. He cares. He's on it. So throw this self-help out of the window. We can't even control our own health. Mike Tyson said, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. That's true, isn't it? What's punching you in the face? What is it? Your health? You got this awesome, this self-help plan that you're going to do this and this and this, and then you get your cancer diagnosis, right? Or you get that phone call in the middle of the night, or you have your parenting issue, or your teen goes off the rails, or your spouse leaves, or that spouse you're waiting on never comes. What is it? What's getting punched in the face? Because everybody gets this. We're not in control of the details, none of them. God's in control of all of them, and he can be trusted. He's a much better guide than we will ever be. And that is, man, that is just comfort to our hearts. They found it exactly as he said it would be. So you don't got this, bro. (laughs) You're not crushing it. And if you think you are, pretty soon the wheels are going to crush you. That's point one. That's point one. Point number two. Self-help doesn't work because we don't know ourselves, do we? We think we do, but we don't. And you see that here. And I know I'm skipping the middle part. We'll get back to that. Because it's so interesting to me. It's so interesting. Mark had a really powerful theological point he wanted to make, the way he wrote this. So this is communion. This is the Lord's Supper, his body being broken and given for us, his blood being shed and given for us, and do you know what Mark does this? He, he makes these sandwiches. So the Lord's Supper is the meat in the middle. Do you know what's on either side of that? Judas betraying Jesus, Mark denying Jesus, all the disciples forsaking Jesus. Lord's Supper in the middle. We think Jesus is telling us here. Like, you're going to need this. You're going to need this. You're going to want to remember this with all your self-help stuff that you're going to believe. When you fail, you need to remember this. I've got all this covered. We don't have an accurate knowledge of ourselves. The Bible says we think too highly of ourselves. That's why Proverbs 28, 26 says, he who trusts or follow in Hebrew, he who follows his own heart is a fool. It's a fool. And self-help tells you that. Follow your heart. You got this. No apologies. No excuses. Satanic is what that is. It's satanic. I don't know any other way to say it. And some of you maybe have read some of this stuff, and maybe you believe some of this stuff. And man, it's, the disappointment will come, and it will not be pretty. The Bible says, we cannot trust our hearts. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says that. So look at Peter here. <laughs> Jesus, first of all, there's Judas. And listen, there's a little bit of Judas in all of us, if we're honest. I know it's easy to read this and think, how could he? How could he? The Bible says our hearts are dark and twisted and who can know them? Jesus is so gracious. This could be five sermons that we could just camp out here. Jesus is so gracious. He says, one of you will betray me. Let me ask you a question. Did Jesus know who the traitor was? Yes. What would you have done? Would you have done what I've done? What I would have done, I would have busted in the upper room. Traitor! He's going to, guys, 
Do you know what's in this guy's heart right here? He's about to sell all of us out, me included, and take this thing off the rails. But he didn't. You know why? You know what Jesus is doing here? He's showing extreme love and patience and grace to Judas. This is an opportunity for Judas to repent. He doesn't take it. You know what Jesus says? He's serving notice. He's saying, Judas, I see you. I know. I see you. Don't do this. I mean, this is, this is the whole theological conundrum in a way because Jesus, uh, he's saying, the Son of Man goes as it has been written. He's going to be betrayed. And he even says later, Judas, what you do, do quickly on one hand. But on the other hand, he's saying, Judas, don't do this. Judas is responsible for this. Jesus is showing love and patience and extending grace to Judas, saying, Judas, I see you, I know. There's a Judas in all of us, guys, if we're honest. The minute that you think in your mind, in your heart, I would never do that. I would, it's not in me to be able to do something that treacherous. You have stepped over the line into deceitfulness. You have. There's a Judas in all of us. I'm a little bit embarrassed to tell you this as your pastor, but I like Stephen King. <laughs> Some of his books. Some, some get really, you can't, I get it. But I like scary stories, I always have. And a lot of Stephen King's stuff, you, you know, it's okay. And uh, I, I, I love the book that William Golding wrote called Lord of the Flies. Have you ever heard of that book? He wrote it in 1954. No book like that has ever been written. And I was reading the, uh, what's it called, 50 year, not bicentennial, but some special edition came out 50 years after. And Stephen King wrote the foreword to the book. And he tells the story of how he came across this book, Lord of the Flies. And I thought it was really interesting. He said, that book changed my life. That book thrust me into the writing world. I didn't know that. Everybody has a moment that changed their, and that was Stephen King's. And he, he talks about when he was a kid, he used to go up to this Methodist church and they had a bunch of books and he would always look through them and try to find it. He would just find like superficial, hardy boy adventure books where the good guys always win, the bad guys always lose. And he said, it just always seemed a little bit off to him. Like it didn't really comport with reality. And he said this, this lady every week that drove a book wagon through town and she saw Stephen King, he was in there digging through books and she said, are you looking for something? Are you looking for something uh, that, that I can help you with? He said, do you have a book about how kids really are? You ever wonder that? Do you have a book that really comports with reality? That's what he asked. Do you have a book about how kids really are? And she looked around and she said, Stevie, Take this book, but if anybody asks, I didn't give it to you. Have you ever read Lord of the Flies? You know the book? It's a bunch of British choir boys, and they're in a terrible airplane wreck, and they're stranded on this deserted island with no adults. And what do you think happens? Well, they play hopscotch, and they color. You know what happens? They, get, they go into all-out beast, savage mode and start killing each other. It's a really interesting book, and there's a, there's a lot of interesting spiritual Christian parallels in the book, and I would, you know, it's an interesting book to read, and we can talk about it sometime if you want. But Stephen King, he, he read that book, and he, he said this. He said, that's the first time I can remember as a human being a, a book that had hands that reached out and grabbed me by the throat. He was like, this comports with reality. This is how I think sometimes. Of course it is, because look at the books that he writes. But it's just interesting to me, man. Look at the Bible. If Stephen King would have read the Bible, it would have reached out with hands and grabbed him by the throat and shaken him and said, this is how you really are. It is. 
This is reality. The friends that are the closest to Jesus are going to all run away, scared, and hide and forsake him. Now, that's why self-help doesn't work. We don't know ourselves well enough, do we, to make it work. Judas wouldn't repent. And look what Peter says. This is really interesting. Look what Peter says in verse, let's see, 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. In, in Greek, this word is scandalizo. Does that sound familiar? Scandalize. All of you are going to do something so scandalous and so outrageous, you're not going to believe it, but you're going to have to trust me. All of you are going to scandalize me. You're going to be, you're going to offend. You're going to stumble. You're going to fall. Check this out. You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd. That's so interesting. I could go back to point one. Who's the one doing the striking here? Who's in control? I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Look at verse 28, guys. Peter is so confident. He's so self-helpish right now. That totally escapes his notice. You realize what Jesus just said? He said, you're all going to scandalize me and yourselves. You're going to be crushed with disappointment. But it's okay because I'm going to rise from the grave and I'm going to go before you and I'm going to chase after you. Went right over his head. Look what Peter says. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I won't. You can't make this stuff up. You can't make this stuff up. Here's the rock. Here's, here's Jesus' best friend, speak, humanly speaking. Peter, James, John. The circle, man. This is the circle. And Jesus is telling him, you're all going to scandalize yourselves. You're all going to deny me. You're all going to forsake me and run away and fail spiritually. And has Jesus ever misled them, ever? No. Has he ever said a half-truth? Has he ever said something that didn't come to pass? And look what Peter says. He's basically saying, you don't know me. <laughs> you don't know me. I'm so much stronger than you're giving me credit for here, God. Come on. How would you feel if you were one of the other disciples, by the way? Did you see, you got to laugh. You got to laugh at this. Because <laughs> look what he says. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I won't. <laughs> you know what he's saying? I'm stronger than you think. I'm stronger than them. Jesus, you can count on me. That's what he's saying. Self-help. You got this, Peter. You're going to crush it, Peter. Uh-uh. He's saying, Peter, you're going to be crushed. You don't know yourself. Don't trust yourself, Peter. When you're crushed with disappointment, and there's many other parallel passages about this. In Matthew and John... Where Jesus says, Peter, Satan has, Satan has asked permission to sift you like wheat. You know, you would throw up the wheat and the chafe and the wheat would separate in the wind. He's saying, Satan has demanded that I let him separate you from your faith. And he says, and I'm going to let him have a go at it. But it's okay because I've prayed for you. And when you turn back, encourage your brothers. This is something cosmic and satanic is going on. It's really interesting. I wish we, we had the time. Maybe to, in the future we'll do a series on this. The Upper Room. Satanic cosmic showdown. Satan's there. You know, you've seen the pictures of all the disciples. Satan's there. It says when Judas ate the morsel of bread, Satan entered it with him. And then Jesus says, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, Peter. Satan's there and he's saying, I want him 
and I want him, and I want all of them. And Jesus is in sovereign control. He's poised. He's master of the moment. He's saying, Jesus, Jesus is saying, Peter, you're going to fail. Judas, you're going to betray me. All of you will run away like little cowards. But when I rise from the grave, I'll go before you. And you're going to want to remember that. You're going to need to remember that piece of information. He thought of himself more highly than the odd. How many of you have ever done that? That will never happen to me. I could never do that. That's right. It's almost, it's, if it wasn't so crushing, it would be funny. Because I don't know how many times, I don't know how many times before I had six kids, I was just at the grocery store. <laughs> and like, my kids will, my kids will never do that. And I would never say that to my kid. Yeah, right. <laughs> Have you guys ever... Uh, are you familiar with the Auschwitz death camp that Adolf Hitler? Of course you are. You've heard about this. Four million Jews were sent there to their death. And after Germany surrendered, leaders from that camp were put on trial. And in some cases, survivors were put on the witness stand to testify against the crimes of humanity. And one of those survivors, his name was Yehiel Denur. I'm probably not saying that right. But he was one of the key witnesses and he was asked to testify in court, and he knew that he would be a witness, and he knew he would have to confront and face the people that were responsible for the savage, cruel death of many of his brothers and sisters, along with other 89 other survivors. So he had nightmares. He was dreading that day, but finally the moment came, and he was escorted into the courtroom, and he was directed to sit down in the witness chair, and he read a written statement, and then the prosecution began to ask questions but he couldn't answer them. And here's why. He looked up at that moment, and the man that he was testifying against, his name was Adolf Eichmann. He was one of the main organizers of the Holocaust who sent over four million Jews to the gas chambers. He looked up at the courtroom and he stared at him, and he rose from his chair, he mumbled something, and then he began to sob uncontrollably, and he fainted in the floor. Cameras caught the moment. There he is, poised, calm, reading his statement, he saw that man in the courtroom, and that's what happened next. He fainted. And everyone wanted to know what happened. Was he overcome by hatred? Was he overcome by fear? Did he have PTSD from the memories? He was asked that question years later in an interview with Mike Wallace on 60 Minutes. And here's what he said. This is so astonishing to me. He said, no, it was none of those. He said, he said, rather, all at once, I realized Eichmann was not the godlike army officer who had sent so many to their deaths. He was an ordinary man, and I was afraid about myself. I saw, man, I'm sorry, I don't know why I'm getting so <laughs> I'm feeling my age every week, man. I'm balling up here. <clears throat> all right, self-help, we got this. <laughs> He said, I was afraid about myself. I saw that I am capable to do this. I collapsed because I saw my reflection in him. I am exactly like he. And then he said this, Eichmann is in all of us. Man, that's interesting, isn't it? That's interesting. I'd never do that. I would never betray Jesus. 
I would never, never go to those, to those depths of depravity. Be careful what you say. That's why self-help doesn't work. That man's statement captures the central truth about human nature. We're desperate for Jesus. I'm reading a book right now, and it's called Confronting Christianity. It's a great apologetic book. And in this book, this, uh, um, this lady said this. She said, No friendship in the world would last a day if we could see each other's thoughts. <laughs> Run that test on yourself between now and tomorrow, she said. Think of everyone you spent time with and ask, would I let them see a transcript of my thoughts? My marriage would die. My children would be crushed. My friends would leave. My thoughts, my thoughts are not all bad. Many are good and kind and true, but like a bag of flour infested by maggots, no part of me is pure. Some people say, man, that's, ah, pastor, come on. <laughs> come on. That's, that's a bit much, but guys, that's Christianity. That's Christianity. Jesus didn't come to help those who help themselves. He came to help people who realize they're desperate, they're helpless. There's absolutely nothing they can do apart from him. At the end of your rope is the office of Jesus. The quicker you get there, the better. The quicker you realize you are there, the better. And I will tell you something else. It's just, this is just for free, okay? I don't want people to say that. It's not like you got charged for the other stuff. But th this is an application, Okay. When you understand that there's an Eichmann, there's a Judas, there's a Peter in all of us, you know what it really helps facilitate? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Because one of the reasons we have such a hard time forgiving people is we think, I'd never do that. I could never do that. I would never do that. You exclude yourself from the community of sinners, right? And you exclude them from the community of saints when you do that. Man, I saw this demonstrated last week. I'm sure that you've seen this. It's been all over the place. A white police officer who was off duty, by all accounts, accidentally walked into her neighbor's apartment thinking it was her own. She was off duty. She had a gun with her. And she saw a black man sitting on the couch, a dark silhouette. I don't think... I'm probably not reading this right. She said she saw a dark silhouette and she thought it was an intruder. And she pulled her gun, yelled some commands. He didn't seem to respond. And so she shot him in the heart and he died. He was eating ice cream, watching TV. Wow. With all the other racial tension going on in America, that happened. And so this court hearing happened. Did you guys see this? So apparently this man she shot, he was a Christian. And you don't even... You hate to even qualify, but you hear, oh, yeah, he was a believer. No, this guy, this guy was a believer. He loved Jesus, and Jesus loved this guy. He sang at his church. I mean, all the testimonies that I've read, like, man, this guy was legit a believer, and he came from a strong Christian upbringing and family. And his brother got on the witness stand, his little brother. Did you guys see this? That's the man that was shot and killed. That's the police officer who was off, off her shift and did it. And his little brother got up on the witness stand, and I'm paraphrasing, but he looked at her. Now, she could have gotten 99 years for this crime. And she got 10 years, after five of which she's eligible for parole. But his little brother got up and he said, I love you. He looked at her and he said, I love you like I love anybody else. And he said, I know that God will forgive you if you ask him.
And then you know what he, he did something really radical. You know what he did? He asked the judge permission to get down from the witness stand and walk over and embrace her. And he did. For like it, I watched the video. It was a long embrace and they're talking to each other. I think he's probably sharing the gospel with her. And I, and, and, and I had to think in my mind, what would, would grant somebody the power and the freedom to be able to do that? Christ would. Christ would to know this could happen. This could happen. And you know, they discovered some, some uh, racial text messages, all that came out in court. So here's a, a black man looking at a white woman who shot and killed his brother and had some, some racial stuff in her history. And he forgave her. And, and I want to think one of the reasons why is because he knew I'm capable of that. I'm capable of that. You're capable of that. Man, that ushers in forgiveness. It really does. That's just one of the applications. So we're run, running out of time here. The third thing, the third reason why um, self-help never works is because you don't have power over your own heart. And that's us moving into communion today. When Jesus was saying, he sat down with his disciples and he's going through, you know, the Passover feast was looking back to what God did for his people, the children of Israel, while they were in Egypt. They were prisoners. They were held captive. They were enslaved by a powerful, hostile foreign power. And they couldn't escape. All they could do is cry out to God for mercy. And God showed up, didn't he? And he delivered them because they didn't have the power to deliver themselves. And neither do you and neither do I. Neither did Peter, neither did, neither did Judas. That's why I think this whole communion is sandwiched in between Judas's treachery and betrayal, Peter's denial, and all the disciples' failure. And Jesus is saying all these things. He's predicting it, and they would find it just exactly as he told them. And he says, but when I rise, I will go before you. That's what communion is all about. Jesus is going to give his body He's going to shed his blood. And he says, this is my body. It's broken for you. That was new. They had never experienced that as part of the Passover liturgy and, and uh, festival before. Jesus said that. It was brand new. He says, this is my body. You know, the one thing you never see at the Last Supper and all the gospel accounts is, is the lamb. You see the, the wine is there and the bread is there. But you don't see a lamb on the table or read about it. You know why? Because the lamb was at the table. The lamb was at the table. Jesus, as John the Baptist said, this, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's why Jesus put that right in the middle. You guys all need this, he's saying. You will betray me. You will deny me. You will forsake me. You will fail utterly because you're powerless. But I have a power that I'm going to grant to you. I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to give my body for you. I'm going to shed my blood for you. <clears throat> so that when you come back, when you repent, when you confess, this power is going to be there. You know, we all, before we are delivered from, before the Son and the truth set us free, we have to be honest about the lies that have held us captive, right? And I think self-help is one of them. We don't, we don't have this. We don't got this at all. We don't have control of the details. We don't have the knowledge about ourselves, and we don't have the power to deliver ourselves. Augustus top lady, top lady said this. This was a man who knew himself well enough to say this. He said, upon a review of the past year, I desire to confess that my unfaithfulness has been exceedingly great. 
my sins still greater, God's mercies greater than both, my shortcomings and misdoings, my unbelief and want of love would sink me into the lowest hell was not Jesus my righteousness and my Redeemer. Isn't that good? Jesus delivered his people from slavery in the Old Testament and he delivers us from slavery in the New Testament, from our own sin. That's the only way that we can face our failures with his grace, with his help. Psalm 16, verse 8, has been a really powerful verse for me this week. It says this. This is King David, and he says this. He says, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, therefore I will not be shaken. And I think as Christians, a lot of the times we get so unsettled and so shaken. That word for shaken there, it's the same word that Isaiah used for how an idol made by hands teeter-totters and flops over. It's the same word that Moses used in Deuteronomy when he said their foot shall slide in due time. Remember Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon on that that sparked a revival. It's the shaking that an unbeliever experiences so that a false idol falls over. But David says, I've set the Lord always before me. Because he's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. You know what communion is, guys? Do you know what it is? It's us collectively putting the Lord, setting the Lord before us. Putting him at our right hand so that we will not be shaken. That's a grace. That's one of God's graces to us for assurance. For us to know that we're so sinful that Jesus had to die. It's what you see in that upper room. But Jesus loves us so much, he was glad to do it. Let's pray, and if you have believing children in the back that you want to go collect, this would be a time that you could do that. Father in heaven, thank you so much for these truths that we've seen. Self-help is a lie, and it's a satanic lie. Satan is the father of lies, and he's been a liar from the beginning. And Lord, so many Christians fall prey to this kind of thinking about themselves. That we can live the Christian life on our own when we can do nothing apart from you. And communion reminds us of how desperate our need is and how available your help is. You love us and you died for us. And you are for us and you will never leave us or forsake us, Lord. And we can tangibly handle the bread and, and taste the, the juice, Lord, and be reminded of that today. All of our senses are involved in remembering your love for us. So help us to do that and help us to do that well for your glory and eradicate the lie of self-help from our hearts and from our minds and from our fellowship, Lord. We pray and ask all these things in the mighty and the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.